All right, everybody. Thanks for being patient. Well, we got the panel set up. Welcome, everybody, to our first FOMC and macroeconomics space of 2024. There are a lot of things to touch on today, so I'm really excited to get our panelists' takes on recent data and how things are kind of looking moving forward. Now, as those who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels super open for discussion. So if you have anything to add as we go along, please feel free to just use that Twitter spaces, raise your hand emoji, and I'll know to call on you. That way we don't have any kind of background noise when other people are talking. So if you can just keep mics muted while others are talking, that would be perfect. So I'm just going to kind of run down our panelists here, and we'll also be joined by Michael Cow later on in the space. But for now, we'll start off with those who are here. We've got Joseph Wang, our go-to Fed guy. As many of you know, he headed the trading at the Fed's open markets desk, has an amazing introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101, which I highly recommend people read. And he's the CIO at Monetary Macro. How's it going, Joseph? Thanks for coming back as always. Hey, Nicholas. Hey, Unusual Wells. And hey, everyone else. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here, and this is my favorite FOMC space. It's my favorite FOMC space too, Joseph. I might be a little biased though. Up next, we've got Jem Carson, the leading volatility expert and the founder of Kai Volatility. They're launching tons of new and innovative things coming up in the next months, so check them out for sure. Welcome back, Jem. Hey guys, great to be here. Uh, Look forward to it uh, every six weeks. Uh, always, always a great conversation. I always learn more than I give uh, on this one. This is well worth everybody's time. Oh, I certainly learn more than I give. I come in here like a baby deer on new legs, and I leave feeling a lot more confident than I started. Next, we've got the last bear standing, a friend of the spaces. Last bear is an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not subscribed to that Substack, you should be. I learn a lot from that with every issue. Welcome back, last bear. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, like everyone else said, uh, this is a, a great room and a, a good group of panelists that we have here. So I'm looking forward to it today. As am I. Thanks for coming, Last Bear. Next, we've got Bob Elliott. He's a CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful Twitter threads during a banking crisis. He's also a friend of these spaces. We love having him on here. So let's give him a warm welcome back. How's it going, Bob? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I I almost, uh, are we having another banking crisis today? Ah, I don't think so. I don't think so. No need, no need to get out those. <laughs> again. I hope not. Just, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great to um, get on with everybody. And, and it's always such a great panel that I get a lot out of. And, and this time I'm coming live to you from the uh, iConnections conference. So if you hear a little background noise, uh, it's, a, it's a little conference vibe going on behind me so happy to be here happy to have you man background or not so like i said michael cow will be joining us about 20 minutes into the panel but i do want to kind of get things rolling here so before we get really started let's get a quick macro overview of the last month since our last fomc panel now since we last spoke real gdp increased at an annual rate of 3.3% in the fourth quarter of 2023. Unemployment was relatively unchanged, and by relatively, I mean entirely, 
at 3.7% in December, with payroll employment increasing by 216,000, beating the estimated 160,000 by a pretty wide margin. Following the Jobs report, Yellen was cited as saying that the U.S. has achieved their soft landing goals thus far, and given the GDP print and core PCE from the fourth quarter of last year sitting right at 2%, others are echoing that sentiment. So honestly, let's go ahead and start right there. Let's go, Joseph, if you could start us off here. In your recent Markets Weekly video, you commented on the soft landing, indicating that you believe we're on the right path to that end. So to kind of get things rolling here, do we have enough evidence now to affirm the path to a soft landing? And what things are we missing in the macro overview at the moment, Joseph? So I think we have enough evidence, not just to say we're on the path, but I think we are reached the destination. Now, in thinking about this, I think we should just rewind a little bit to think about what's been happening the past two years. As we recall, you know, inflation was very high, and Chair Powell went, gave a speech at Jackson Hall saying that basically there will be some pain. The thinking is that he would cause a recession by raising interest rates, unemployment would go up, and that would um, cause inflation to to go back towards two percent a soft landing would be being able to return to to the fed's inflation target without causing a recession without causing a rise in unemployment now when we look at the gdp data like, like you mentioned we see that over the past six months core pce bang on two percent fed's target uh, gdp continues to grow above trend unemployment continues to remain low wages continue to grow so you know that that's that's basically reaching soft landing now going forward uh, maybe inflation reaccelerates. Maybe we fall into recession. Uh, but we've very much achieved soft landing. I mean, just just look at just look at where inflation is, and just look at where GDP growth and unemployment is. I think that's a case closed. But we we should look forward from there. Yeah, and we'll definitely touch on both of those at length. Um, thank you, Joseph. Last bear, I'd love your take here as well. How are you feeling given the recent data releases regarding our trajectory toward that soft landing? Yeah, I think that um, what we've seen throughout the past year of 2023 um, was uh, growth that sort of uh, far outpaced what a lot of expectations were. Um, and I think that a lot of that um, comes back to uh, financial conditions sort of reaching their tightest point all the way back almost over a year ago um, in late 2022. Um, and despite the fact that the Fed has continued to raise interest rates um, throughout the first half of 2023, um, the reality is that financial conditions have continued to loosen as um, uh, market participants have a better better idea of where the terminal uh, rate is going to be and sort of are looking forward to uh, rate cuts in the future. Um, and so I think that a lot of the economic data continues to just support uh, that position. The one area that I'm uh, a little bit less uh, optimistic around is, is the labor market, um, which despite the fact that it's held up much better than many people have um, expected, including myself probably a year or a year and a half ago, um, it continues to show, show deceleration in terms of wages, in terms of some of the softer indications of sort of trajectory, whether you look at Schultz data, whether you look at temporary workers or um, sort of those uh, more macro uh, sort of um, cycle type indicators that sort of point to uh, weakening in the labor market, which I think you can see in a, a ton of different surveys and a ton of different sort of soft data. And so we haven't seen that 
crop up in terms of initial claims and um, continued claims and official unemployment rate um, on the aggregate level. But it is an area that's uh, I think the Fed is sort of looking at closely and is will be a factor as they continue to make their monetary policy for the year ahead. Thank you, Last Bear. Jim and Bob, kind of the same question here. And are we missing anything with regards to the economy's growth from the onset? Is the destination already here? Let's go, Jim, then Bob. Yeah, I think one of the, the big things I, I like to highlight is, you know, we can talk about the economy and we can talk about markets. And those two aren't exactly the same thing. They're actually often very, very different. Um, you know, again, I've talked about the 60s and 70s before, a lot of the same structural issues happening at that time, um, obviously different things as well. But if you think about that market, 68 to 82, this is something that really blows a lot of people's minds when they go under the hood is growth was above trend. GDP growth was actually higher in real terms with a lot of inflation, nominally way higher, but in real terms, it was above trend higher than it has been the last 30 years. Yet that market lost 70% of its value in real terms. And I think that is something that people have completely lost sight of, right? People are looking at the market and saying, what are markets going to do? Is the economy strong? Uh, are we in recession? Are we not? I think that misses uh, a huge, huge part of the picture when we're thinking about markets and how to bet on these outcomes. Um, you know, why did that happen? Why did we get massive contraction? Because interest rates kept trending higher um, for liquidity reasons, for, you know, a lot of other reasons, because there was structural inflation. So we can cyclically battle structural inflation in the short term, we can slow inflation. But what does that really affect in terms of long-term yields? And, that, and that's what really matters here. What's happening more long-term, not in this kind of cyclical world? And what's happening to margins and what's happening to flows and in that world um you know this this tech rally the mag 7 kind of rally is um really a reverse trend to what i believe is a, is a bigger structural um inflationary pressure so we can talk about the cyclical effects uh increasing unemployment potential coming recession all those things happen uh three times uh, throughout the 1960s and 70s but um duration really got crushed during that time um, a lot of other, uh, you know, structural rebalances, the rotation that we get is important. So I think the one thing that's really out of line here, and we're starting to see today, I can get into to structural vol effects and, and why we've been seeing what we've been seeing in terms of short-term liquidity and tech flows. Um, but I think this is uh, an interesting, um, you know, the, the earnings yesterday mark a very important point um, in the rotation of tech versus the rest of the market. I think that's something we'll dive into later today. Thank you, Jim. Bob, any comments before I pick on you with our first question? I, I feel like I should come out with a, a Lee Corso style, not so fast on you know achieving the soft landing. Hopefully, some. Oh, let's hear it. You know, so, yeah, hopefully, some portion of the, uh, the listeners uh, know what that reference is. Um, but you know, I, I think we certainly have reached a point which would be consistent with a soft landing, which is, you know, decent GDP growth, no deterioration on employment and inflation back to the Fed's target. The question is not, do we have a print or a set of a couple of prints that meet the soft landing? The question is, do we stay there for, you know, six months or a year? And when you're trading markets, that's really what you care about. You don't really care about, you know, 
did we put in some few a few prints that look that way? And that's where I'm a little more skeptical. Now, I think my skepticism uh, is uh, placed in a slightly different place than it is than than that of Last Bear, who um, who you know is a smart guy. You should definitely follow and, and read his stuff for sure. I think I'm more concerned about the inflationary acceleration occurring, and particularly around you know the composition if we get down to the composition of how we've achieved inflation close to the fed's mandate um what we've done is we've had really weak particularly goods prices and falling the direct and indirect effects of falling oil prices and gas prices really help get us to the point where um we're getting that two percent print and we still have elevated services prices that probably won't get us resolved, resolved as quickly, either housing or non-housing, as people expect, um, given wage inflation and also given uh, the aggregate um, the aggregate tenant renewal rate that's going on, rather than the new uh, rather than the new tenant renewal rates. And so I put that together and I say, looks like we could have more services inflation for longer than people expect. And the odds that we'll continue to see meaningfully negative goods price inflation like we've seen would require a continuation of price falls at the same pace that they have been at. I'm not sure we can necessarily predict that in the future. We've seen gas prices stabilizing here or a small uptick. There's reasons to believe that the geopolitical issues will flow through to rising goods prices uh, on a long lag, but by the end of the year. And so I look at that combination of things and combined with an economy that's doing pretty well, and I think we could easily start to see, you know, a bit of a, a, a takeoff again in inflation, not in two months or three months, but by the end of the year. And that would be um, inconsistent with having actually achieved uh, the, the soft landing uh, in a durable way rather than in a short term way. Thank you, Bob. Last Bear, do you have any comments there since he spoke to some of your points? No, I think um, I, I think the future is uh, we'll, we'll have to see what happens with inflation moving forward. I think that that is a risk that you could see, um, you know, if, if everything continues to be on the upside from economic data and employment data and everything holds together, then there certainly is a case that we sort of hit the low point for the reasons that Bob mentioned, uh, oil and goods and, uh, you know, all, all those things start to normalize and sort of reach a point that's higher than um, what the Fed's target is. And I think that, that to the extent that that happens, um, it would throw a major wrench into uh, sort of the, the path of monetary policy, which um, both based on the dot plots going forward and market expectations going forward is that we're going to see significant rate cuts over the coming years. So that would be um, unexpected from a market perspective and uh, would probably be painful for a lot of positions. Thank you, Last Bear and Bob. So I do kind of want to been the topic here uh well first actually does anybody on the panel have anything to comment on what bob and last bear spoke about before i get to the next question okay so i want to pivot here a little bit toward the rate cut discussion uh the projected chances for a rate cut in march currently sit near the 50 50 mark at 46 percent but I mean, like a mere week ago, if I'm not mistaken, it was as high as 65 to 70%. Now, Bob, you said on Macro Sunday with Andreas Steno that you saw zero evidence for rationale of such a cut in March. 
Could you walk us through your take there, Bob? And then after that, I'd really like to kick this around the panel after Bob's comments. Well, I think anytime you're trying to predict one particular meeting versus another, you know, it's a it's a bit. You know, my, my point is less about like literally March and more um, the general uh, dynamic about saying, look, is there is there an urgency to cut interest rates at this point? And I think um, and from what I see in the macroeconomic data, I don't necessarily uh, see that. And and I, I have people, you know, often people get really focused on on the context and the trend and the, and the commentary and stuff like that. But if you take a step back and you look at what's going on with the U.S. economy in aggregate, we basically have an economy that is, you know, has been growing at or above potential for six quarters, unemployment at secular lows, inflation that has moved back to roughly the higher end, let's say, of the mandate, and following a period of inflation that it was relatively elevated, and you sort of look at that combination of things, um, I should say, and also an environment where asset prices have gone up, you know, 10 to 20%, depending on exactly how you want to take a look at it over the last three months and are at highs. If I were to just tell you that macroeconomic set of conditions and place you in any you know developed world economy, what would be your expectation for the future path of monetary policy? It wouldn't be 150 basis points of cuts happening in relatively rapid succession, right? That wouldn't that just, the, the macroeconomic conditions don't align with that set of dynamics, and I think it really centers around so. That's the that's the core point. When you look at that, it's not obvious to me. Like in many ways, if you look at it from the Fed's perspective, they're accomplishing their mandate at the current level of interest rates. Why do anything in order to upset that circumstance, either to challenge inflation, you know, to challenge particularly to challenge inflation on the upside or overheat the economy by cutting? And so you, you look at that set of circumstances, and I don't I don't see necessarily the the fundamental rationale for delivering anything close to what's going on. And the last thing I'd say is, I'm sure we're going to talk about real rates and people are going to make the case that, you know, mechanically, if inflation falls and interest rates stay the same, that there's a tightening of real interest rates. And that is just not like that is, you know, in a in a uh, theoretical sense, true, but not in a practical sense, true. The fact that wage growth has remained elevated and inflation rates have come down has given the, the consumer more spending power, not less spending power. It is a easing, not a tightening. And it's an important reason why we have strength out of consumer demand. And so to use that as a reason to cut interest rates when we're seeing the exact opposite response from the U.S. consumer is is highly indicative of the fact that it's a theoretical point not a real point based in the fundamentals of the data. And so that's, you know, so so even that case of the real interest rate tightening point, I just don't find it compelling. So I'll take the real interest rate framework thing. Well, first of all, I want to agree with Bob. I think real interest rates is just a theoretical framework. It's probably not useful in real life. And I also believe that later on in the year, there's a good chance that we could see inflation reaccelerate. Uh, but the game is guessing the Fed. And so you have to put yourself in the Fed's shoes and look at the world the way they see the world. And if you look at what they've, if you listen to what they've been saying, then these five or six cuts priced into the market for the next uh, year uh, is actually really reasonable. Now, since last year, late last year, you've had Chair Powell, 
at the September meeting, talk about you know cutting rates to maintain real rates. You'd have John Williams, president of the New York Fed, sit down with the New York Times reporter and basically give a 101 on how he thinks about the world through the lens of real interest rates. You've had Governor Waller uh, say something to the same effect, uh, I think in November last year as well. So the Fed likes to look at the world through the lens of real interest rates, rightly or wrongly. And real interest rates are nominal rates minus expected inflation. If you look at expected inflation based on consumer survey data, like uh, say the New York Fed's consumer survey, University of Michigan uh, survey, and then you look at uh, nominal rates using, let's say the one-year treasury bill, then what you see is that, you know, real rates have basically remained around slightly below 2% even after uh, the market prices in all these cuts because consumer inflation expectations have come down so rapidly. Now, we also more recently just this month have heard uh, Governor Waller reaffirm that he thinks financial conditions are restrictive and so forth. And these guys are probably thinking that, you know, real interest rates, even accounting for all these rate cuts in the market, a little bit below 2%, let's say neutral, about 0.5%. So it's restrictive. And I agree that this is probably nonsensical and not useful in understanding the real world, uh, but I think it's useful in understanding the Fed. And so I, I do think uh, that the market's pricing all these rate cuts uh, makes sense according to how, how I see this. Thank you, Joseph. I'm going to kick this around the panel, but let's start with Jem here. What are your thoughts with regards to cuts, Jem? How is volatility pricing things uh, with regards to overconfidence in rate cuts? And generally, can you walk us through how volatility changes as the futures change for rate heights, Jim? Yeah, so I think um, a, a critical uh, component here of, of what we're what we're seeing is um, that that markets are, you know, and this is what markets do are are forcing the Fed's hands. Like this is a kind of reflexive game. Um, and December twelfth, the last time we heard from the Fed, uh, the market was almost ten percent lower. Um, uh, never mind when they made the decision, right? Um, uh, and so we have uh, markets that are, uh, you know, creating a wealth effect and driving uh, growth. Uh, we have lower yields that have been a function in the last six weeks of, of, of what the Fed has said, and, uh, and that's stimulative, as Bob mentioned. And on top of that, we have, uh, you know, other inflationary forces. We've had two numbers come out, both CPI, and we've had a couple of unemployment uh, readings um, that have been, you know, broadly still, uh, again, a, a, a hot to warm economy. Um, so, so we can keep looking forward and saying transitory and, and, and doing all these things, but, but, you know, we're at 3.7% unemployment. And to Bob's point, uh, that is not, uh, that is not in line with, um, kind of, you can use whatever, uh, framework you want, but with, in that is not in line with a, economy that is uh, really uh, cooling in a dramatic way. So um, I agree with Bob's point as well, that ultimately that that we're, you know, we can print. Uh, we did this many times in the 70s, uh, uh, not to keep drawing upon that data set, but it's the last inflationary data set we had, where things appeared to be lower inflation, um, you know, that we had slowed inflation, and that growth was uh, not too bad yet. But, you know, this is about trajectory and, uh, you know, we have to uh, where are they going is, is really the question. We need to be skating to where the puck is going. So um, so I, I agree with a lot of what's been said here today. I do think, uh, you know, 
unless the Fed, um, you know, slows today the, the kind of dot plot uh, picture that they really painted six weeks ago um, or, or, you know, pushes back against what the markets see coming. Um, I think we're going to have a continued acceleration and we're already seeing market up, vol up to get into the vol picture because expectations of this far, this fast uh, uh, were underestimated. Um, and call skew, uh, you know, take out today a little bit was, you know, has been at record levels, uh, particularly in, um, uh, you know, some of these tech names. Um, that flattening of, of call skew, that uh, squeeze, if you will, will continue to put pressure on the upside uh, until, um, because people broadly weren't prepared for that 25% rally we've seen. Uh, it's too far, too fast. And again, caught markets off guard. Um, whenever the market, Fed catches markets off guard, either direction, that's dangerous. Um, that creates underlying volatility and, and, um, and underpositioning uh, that can create a, a wobble, I guess I would say. So be careful. The faster we go, the more we, we squeeze to the upside, the more um, potential energy we create, the more the less uh, vol supply we have because it's being taken, you know, as we've seen the last several weeks, uh, dealers are being taken out of their vol. Um, uh, as we go to the upside and vol is just too cheap. It's too easy to own vol and make money. So I would say uh, structurally uh, what the Fed is doing here, if it, if it continues to, to push a, a, um, an agenda of, of really stimulating in the face of without the proof uh, that, that, they, that this economy is slowing to the extent they say it is, um, this market could really rip and reflexively create um, a real uh, volatile situation going forward. And again, that doesn't mean in one month or three months, but they're really um, you know, managing this. And, and one of their mandates, whether they verbally say it or not, is, is to dampen you know, volatility and to smooth the business cycle. So um, I, I'll be curious to see if, if they continue the narrative um, uh, that they have, which caught the market a bit by surprise last time, because if they do, um, I think they're really opening downside risk for the market the further this market goes. Thank you, Jim. Now to kick it around the panel a bit, does anybody have any comments to the last few points by Jim, Joseph, and Bob? And if you have anything to add to what you previously said, please feel free. So what I'll do here is, Joseph, I'd love your thoughts here since we very briefly touched on a comment or two on the Treasury. The Treasury announced on Monday that it plans to borrow $760 billion this quarter, down from its estimate in October of $816 billion. That's a pretty significant difference. And some say that comes due to higher cash balances at the end of Q1 and estimates for higher tax receipts. Due to that, the market rallied over 1%, hitting all-time highs again. And I'd love your thoughts, Joseph, just on that balance sheet announcement by the Treasury, what it means for the markets and why the markets rallied significantly off of that news. Sure. I think I saw Bob's hand up. Maybe I'll, I'll let him add before continuing. Sure. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I was not quick enough on the draw to press all the things. Um, I, I just want to say, I, I think Joseph's point about um, you have to get in the head of the Fed uh, versus necessarily the sort of so versus solely looking at the fundamental macroeconomic conditions in terms of understanding what they're going to do. I agree with that point. I think the way in which it, it's the sort of thing where um, 
where we could easily see a set of circumstances where they, uh, if they, first of all, I think there's a fair amount of uncertainty about exactly how they're going to respond. I think I have more uncertainty than someone like Joseph has, and he's closer to it, so I think he probably has more confidence in his read of how they're going to respond. But assuming they do respond in the way that Joseph's describing, I, I think what that does from a market participant standpoint is you've got to you've got to think about what essentially that policy error means for the pricing of other other things uh, across asset markets, and in particular, just because they make a policy mistake in the you know in the shorter term doesn't necessarily mean that they are their their policy over time will be divorced from the macroeconomic fundamentals, and so. My guess is if they do come out dovish on the short end, that's actually a bad thing for bonds, not a good thing for bonds, which is a little confusing because typically if they end up cutting interest rates, you know, that's generally a good thing for bonds, but only good in the sense that that macroeconomic policy, that monetary policy is responding to weakening economic conditions or lowering and meaningfully lower inflation and not good in, if what they're doing is actually easing too much in response to the strength of underlying conditions. So that's my guess. If, if It's going to be a weird market action, but if Powell comes in, into the presser very, very dovish, that is a bad environment for bonds, not a good one. Thank you, Bob. And right before we get to Joseph here, I just want to comment. It looks like we're having some issues with the the hosts being able to see what's going on with the speakers. So instead of raising your hand for the emoji, feel free to just chime in. Just give it a quick beat after someone finishes talking before you unmute. Just since we can't see the hand raise emojis, feel free to speak freely. All right, Joseph, hit us with that nitty gritty. <laughs> okay. So also today we had a quarterly fund refunding announcement. And this has become more of a focus for market participants because it's been more market moving the past two quarters. So uh, as we recall, in August, Treasury had their quarterly refunding announcement. They seem to suggest that, you know, we're going to issue increased coupon sizes for the next few quarters and we're going to increase them by a lot. And that seemed to catch the market off guard a lot and contributed to a significant sell off in Treasury. So we saw yields rise a lot and so forth. Uh, but then on the November quarterly refunding announcement, it seems like they they were. The, the announcement was lower than expected in terms of coupon sizes and more of a willingness to, to increase the share of bills in their debt mix. And so that seemed to have contributed to a rally in treasuries. And you know, this is kind of unusual. If you look back for the past 10, 20 years, quarterly refunding announcements uh, are things that no one pays attention to, but now everyone pays attention to them. And I think Undersecretary of, of uh, Financial Markets actually had a uh, had, a, had a nice piece written about him in the Wall Street Journal this week. So today, today's quarterly refunding announcement didn't seem to have that big of a market impact. So we did see treasuries rally a lot, but that could be because of fears of what's happening in the banking sector. Uh, from, from my read, the announcement was kind of in line with expectations. Again, the treasury is increasing their coupon sizes this time and thinks that this is a last increase for quote unquote several quarters. And their strategy seems to be to continue to increase their share of bill issuance uh, going forward to several quarters. So um, there was a possibility here for them, from my perspective, for them to actually have a big impact on monetary policy in that they could accelerate their shift towards bills. Uh, because when they do that, what, they be, what they're also doing is two things. 
they're also significantly reducing the reverse repo facility, which we've seen over the past six months decline from about, you know, over two trillion to let's say about 600 billion today. That's largely due to Treasury's strategy of significantly shifting issuance towards the bills. Uh, this matters because there are some people at the Fed who want to link quantitative tightening to the level of the RRP. I don't think that's a majority position, but there are some people who think that way. And in that case, then, you know, if you're Treasury, you could issue a whole bunch of bills, push the RRP really low, really quickly, and you can kind of lobby for our faster QT, uh, which, of course, the market likes. I mean, faster end of QT, which, of course, the market likes. Uh, the second thing, of course, is if you issue a lot of bills, uh, you put upward pressure on money market rates, which everyone at the Fed looks to to gauge sense of their sense of uh, quote unquote reserve scarcity. And when the reserves become scarce, when money market rates rise as a spread to IOR or RRP, uh, usually people start calling for an end to QT, which of course would also be market positive. Um, it doesn't seem like Treasury went out of their way to uh, increase bill share, but it is going higher over the couple next few quarters and far above their 20% target uh, that they used to have. I want to ask a quick question, actually, if you don't mind, uh, Joseph, um, what was your, what were your thoughts on uh, the extension a, a bit of duration in this QA announcement? And then, you know, do you think there's enough liquidity based on your experience for uh, the, the increase in, in bond issuance? Um, you know, uh, Put, put us all in, in that seat, uh, you know, and, and what would it take to for the Fed, do you think, to uh, really end QT? I mean, it surprised me to some extent that they're debating that as quickly as they are. Obviously, they will need to buy, bring liquidity in uh, if they are extending duration more. Um, but anyway, I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit about uh, kind of going forward, if you think not just what the market thought, but what you think, uh, you know, liquidity, the, the current liquidity circumstances are in the bond market, given that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So as we know, over the past few months, the bond market seems to have some indigestion, particularly when it comes to longer dated issuance, like the 30 year. So Treasury has been very, very um, sensitive to that. So in today's QRA, you can see that them uh, shifting issuance towards the belly, let's say two to five, and they're really keeping their sizes in the 30 year. So they are sensitive to that. And they're, they're trying to not uh, trying to load issuance towards segments of the market points on the curve that are more easily digested and of course increasing the share of bill issuance uh, but at the end of the day uh, the size of of the 10 10 year 20 or 30 years is still you know looking past a few years pretty large and I, I don't really know how the market would take it so when you're thinking about when i'm thinking about things like liquidity a, a big part of that of course is just sentiment perceptions of the future and so forth um, when you look at the asset management community, how they're positioned for duration, they do this view futures, which we can see through weekly data. Uh, they're they're quite they're quite gung ho on this. So at least the asset management community seems to be um, happy to buy this. And of course, the link between the futures and the um, the cash market is through the uh, cash futures basis trade, which continues to grow. And so far, even though the regulators want to crack down on it. Uh, so far seems to be able to link the two. And so that, that seems to be healthy appetite. Again, the question is going forward, um, do we see inflation continue to reaccelerate? I, I like Bob's point that you know, maybe it's not good for the market if the Fed cuts rates. On the one hand though, you have you know, dovish Fed cutting rates. 
that's uh, putting downward pressure on the path of policy. On the other hand, if you have a fundamental view, you could think that maybe that's inflation in the future, and so that's so that's bad for rates. So I think there's I think it's really cloudy, and I, and I don't really know. My core view, of course, is that at the end of the day, you have unlimited amounts of issuance. Rates are going to go higher, and I also think this is inflationary. Uh, but looking to what the Treasury is doing, and of course we have a buyback program that's going to be operational in May. I think they have enough. Uh, I think there's enough positive sentiment on bonds, and I think there's enough tools to keep things stable for the coming months. Thank you, Jim and Joseph. Now, last bear, I've got something I want to toss your way, but first, I'm curious if you had any comments on to everything that Joseph just said. Um, no, I thought he did a good job of explaining it. Beautiful. So last year, we kind of spoke at length about the 10-2 yield curve. Between October and December, as nominal rates dropped, the inflationary signaling waned. But some are now saying that the yield curve is once again hinting at that rebound in inflationary pressures. And I think Joseph did touch on that very briefly there as well. Now, last bear, maybe you can shed some light on what your thoughts are here. What's the yield curve saying to you? And then I'd like to kick this around the panel as well on their thoughts for the bond markets at large. Well, I think the the point that I'd make on the yield curve is that since 2012, the Fed has started putting out forward guidance in the form of a dot plot, which gives not just an indication of where the short-term rate will be today, but uh, the Fed's expectation of where it will be over the coming several years. And I think that that does have a significant influence on longer-term uh, yields and therefore the yield curve. Um, and so I think that a lot of, in order to understand sort of this monetary cycle, you, I think that a flaw in thinking is to just look at where the, the short-term rate is, wherever the federal funds rate is, and not sort of look forward into what the Fed is sort of projecting um, going forward. So I think probably the best case that you can make for rate cuts over the coming years, the fact that the Fed has said that they are going to do you know rate cuts in substantial quantities over the coming three years, and the market is listening to the Fed and is pricing that accordingly. And so um, to the extent that the Fed sort of reneges on that or, or you know changes that course of action, you have sort of a, a tightening, even if sort of even if they were to keep you know the federal funds rate where it is today, um, but they decide not to cut. Um, because the market is anticipating those cuts and because the Fed has said that they're going to do those cuts, that effectively is tightening. So to keep a neutral path going forward, I think they need to sort of follow through on that rate, you know, on the rate cut path that they've laid out. And, you know, last uh, FOMC meeting was obviously perceived to be very dovish. They lowered um, their estimates in the dot plot pretty much across the board. And I guess I don't really see any, you know, any data that's come in between December and now that would make them uh, more hawkish uh, than they were sort of a, a month ago when they were sort of substantially lowering that forward curve. And so I think that the, the yield curve has been is uh, a little bit um, influenced by um, those forward projections and the dot plot in a way that it hasn't in prior cycles because that sort of forward guidance uh, didn't exist. Um, as to what the yield curve is sort of saying right now, um, I think uh, I, I think that the biggest thing is you know what I, what I mentioned about um, you know the the sort of forward guidance in the path of monetary policy and the fact that seemingly everyone 
um, sort of takes that as a given that rates are going to come down on the long end. And so that's why, you know, you've never seen the 10 year go above or, or really approach um, the short term rate in this cycle. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here, actually. Um, I've said this before, but I just want to keep hammering this home. Everybody thinks about everything because for the last 40 years, that's all that's mattered with just kind of cyclical. Is the economy slowing? If the G- if GDP is slowing, then inflation, you know, uh, is going to get uh, kind of is going to come down. And we're going to get deflation. Right. Um, I think this this structural inflationary pressures, which is really not a function of, of, of GDP growth. It's a function of of where is the money going? Uh, is it going locally? Uh, to, uh, you know, domestically, is it going into uh, the, the bottom part of the distribution? Um, you know, uh, is this going to, is, in other words, what people call velocity, you know, what's the velocity of, of the money in the economy? And, and that's really a function of where is it going in the economy? And that those those things are structurally um, much more inflationary. We're getting, uh, again, a redistribution of, of some of the wealth um, you know, particularly the segments of the population that spend 100% of the money that goes in their pockets. Um, uh, and, and in particular, you know, we're, we're, um, we're getting deglobalization and, and a lot of the lower cost kind of exporting of labor and services uh, parts um, are, no, you know, are going the other way. So, again, I've said this before, but I think it's important to keep that in mind when you're looking at the yield curve. I think we've, um, you know, if you talk, went back a year ago or a year and a half ago, uh, you know, all of the deflationistas um, out there were calling for uh, massively higher unemployment and a dramatically slowing economy. Um, we haven't gotten that. Uh, we haven't gotten that for two and a half, three years, despite people calling for it. And I think the market's starting to wake up to, you know, this idea of a soft landing. Yeah, OK, you can call this a soft landing. You know what else it is? It's stagflation, right? Um, we still have three, three, you know, three percent plus inflation and a slowing uh, GDP. That, that doesn't mean Jobs are are decreasing. We're just getting, you know, we're losing two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars a year jobs in Silicon Valley, but we're we're adding them at the bottom at fifty thousand dollars a year, and those are or thirty thousand dollars a year. Those are not the same type of jobs. Uh, they they have different type, um, uh, you know, spending dynamics about who they're going to as well. So important to note um, that that there's that this is more complicated than just a you know GDP go up or GDP go down. Um, and I think that structural element is something that the market, uh, the longer end of the curve is kind of realizing. And if we're no longer going to be cyclically, you know, if you think about it, we raise rates five and a half percent. How much have we really, you know, yes, we've slowed the economy, but, but it, you know, at what cost of liquidity, et cetera. Uh, and so that cyclical slowdown is really pushing against a, a structurally very inflationary pressure. And, and now to Bob's point, what happens if they are being dovish now starting to turn into what's still a relatively structurally inflationary environment? Um, and, and I think that's really bad, um, you know, for, for bonds uh, on the long end of the curve. Um, obviously, in the short end, it's going to lower the curve. And that's why we're seeing the steepening. And I think we'll continue to see that. Uh, what we saw in the 70s when that happened is a loss of faith in the Fed's ability to control inflation. And that ultimately accelerates inflation long term. So something to really keep an eye on. I think this steepening is very important. It's very unique. Uh, for the last 40 years, people don't uh, aren't used to this. And people are playing a, a, a very clear game that they played, which is cyclical for 40 years. And this is a little bit different. And I think the market's starting to wake up to that a bit. Thank you, Jim. Michael, I see your hand there. I'd love to hear your comments and thanks for joining us late here. And then I'm going to pick on you with a direct question because I still haven't recovered from the cravings I got from all that pasta you posted last week. <laughs> thanks for having me. Sorry for uh, joining late. And uh, I, I no worries. Be hashing. 
I may be rehashing uh, uh, some stuff uh, that's been said, but I, I wanted to just um, kind of second some of the points that Jem just made because I think you know when you when you think about the this matrix, a two by two matrix of you know the the current consensus, uh, you basically starting in the '90s, right? We've had this low inflation, low unemployment utopia. Um, and I think, I think because of some of these structural factors that Jen mentioned, and I'll, and I'll further differentiate these structural factors by intrinsic and extrinsic. I mean, I think I would argue that there are some uh, structural factors that are, that are intrinsic to, to the United States. But I would also argue that there are some extrinsic factors that have come from this, this uh, unique demographic dividend that came out of China over the last 20 years and exporting their, their uh, labor deflation. And um, I, I would argue that maybe, you know, the, the productivity miracle that we saw in the 90s um, was also enhanced by this one-time demographic dividend. And even though you, you could argue that, you know, especially with AI advancements, we still have this this productivity, this inherent deflationary aspect of technology, perhaps it might be a push now against a reversal of some of these uh, one-time extrinsic, uh, uh, you know, demo, you know, demographic tailwinds that are coming out. So I, I definitely think that um, we need to be prepared for the most unpopular quadrant of that two by two matrix, which is we could be in a period where there is higher structural inflation and higher unemployment. And I think the Fed is uh, in a bit of a box because, I mean, really, so far, they really haven't had any trade-off uh, between their their two mandates yet, right? You could argue that now that we're starting to finally see all these job cuts, um, they're just starting to enter this period. But to take a step back, like I, th I think last week I posted this tweet, I said, Look, if you look at real rates since the 80s or whatever, uh, really, we've been in this YOLO period since 2008, where real rates have been be been oscillated between negative and positive 2%. You know where they are right now? They're at 1.69%. And the market is clamoring for six to eight rate cuts um, when we haven't seen any reason for it, and when you consider the fact that we have, we might be uh, in store for a this unpopular fourth quadrant that I talked about of higher structural inflation and higher unemployment. It's a very, to me, it's it would be a very premature decision uh, to to cut, especially in March, but even in May, I would say, because it's they they it's not clear at all to me that uh, that's that especially the the easing of uh, financial conditions from uh, from just the rhetorical pivot back in back in December uh, haven't created uh, this this wealth effect. We certainly see we're seeing equity markets still at all time highs. Um, and then I haven't even talked about the, some of the geopolitical disruptions with respect to shipping rates again, right? So I'm not even talking about that because that's that's sort of like a one-off, hopefully, right? Um, but the last thing the Fed needs to do right now is to goose demand um, into into 
a, a structural and geopolitically exacerbated situation. Um, the, the, the last thing I'll just mention real quick is that I've written at length in the past about these, what I call the four horsemen of uh, U.S. economic resilience. And, you know, to rattle them off, one is this, this structural uh, demographic factor. Two is this, uh, I would argue, the biggest factor, which is this fiscal tailwind um, between the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's a combined total of 2.2 trillion of fiscal earmarks uh, uh, for between the next five to 10 years. That's an ongoing fiscal tailwind. The third is that both uh, corporate America as well as consumer America are relatively rate insensitive. And I wanna touch upon that briefly too. And then the fourth is relative energy independence with respect to most of the rest of the world, especially our biggest geopolitical rival, China. So, so um, on this fiscal tail, the reason why I was late for this call is because I had a, I was on a, uh, another conference call uh, with uh, the largest CLO equity manager uh, in the world, and I was just getting getting kind of like an industry update. And you know, since credit is my background, I just wanted to mention that you know when you think about risky yields, right? Risky yields are comprised of the risk-free rate and then a credit spread. Well, you would think that at this stage of the credit cycle where the risk-free rate has gone to five and a quarter, five and a half percent, that you would see a pickup in defaults, right? Well, you know what the last 12 months uh, senior sort of leveraged loan default rate is? It's like one and a half percent. I think it's this is the same sort of fiscal tailwind that's been driving this benign behavior. And then uh, to put things into pr perspective, Total corporate debt in the U.S. is $3 trillion. Um, of that, um, approximately uh, $1.8 trillion is owned by – sorry, that, that's, that's, that's total so se senior secured you – know, uh, that's the leveraged loan market. $1.8 trillion is basically owned by CLOs now. But but what really surprised me is you, you hear about private credit. Would you believe that private credit is now at 1.6 trillion? It's estimated to be 1.6 trillion, with only one trillion having been deployed. There's 600 billion of private credit dry powder sitting on the sidelines, waiting to refinance, um, even at these rates. So that is what is creating a conundrum for the Fed, more actually less so for the Fed, but more so for the rest of the world central banks, because there's no reason for the Fed to be aggressive in easing right now. And so, but, but you can't really say the same thing for other geographies, certainly not for China or Japan, but I would even say that um, the Eurozone, I think the Eurozone, they might try to tough it, uh, talk uh, talk tough and say that they're more hawkish than the Fed. But economically speaking, I really think, and maybe I'm going to eat my words later today, I really think that Lagarde is going to have to blink before the Fed. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Michael. A lot there. Does anybody have any comments to anything Michael said there? I'll, I'll say one thing real quick. Uh, I do want to just touch on his point. We're not even talking about the shipping issues, right? Um, or, you know, oils kind of rise. Um, everybody treats those as, 
non-core, right, or not some in, in, in any way correlated to uh, other inflationary pressures. Um, I think what I've tried to highlight, and I want people to think of, you know, very closely, is it, it, you know when we get deglobalization, which is a function of you know th- that protectionism that we're seeing, right? We've been getting protectionist rhetoric for, uh, by two presidents now for almost eight years. Um, and that's driven by this populist kind of drive. And, and when that happens, we see more global conflict. And we talked about this six years ago, five years ago, three years ago. Guess what? Uh, we're seeing war after war. We're seeing uh, more conflict. Those are correlated very tightly to the populist pressures that also drive fiscal policy. And we're going to continue to see those things. So you can't just look at them as one-offs, right? Those are part and core of the inflationary pressures that exist. So I just want to make that point. Thank you, Jim. So I do want to pivot here a little bit back to something Bob was saying on bonds earlier. So Bob, you tweeted earlier this month that, quote, stocks will outperform bonds as long as the economy keeps going. The economy will keep going as long as stocks and home prices don't fall too much. Prices of stocks and homes won't fall too much as long as bond yields don't rise for too long. Can you dive into that a little bit, Bob? Ooh, looks like we lost Bob on the panel. So what I'll do here is I'm actually going to kick back to what we were discussing earlier that I wanted to pick on Michael a little bit on, and then we'll kick this around the panel. So Michael, you also touched on that topic of real rates in a tweet last week saying it doesn't make sense that a 1.69% real rate screaming for imminent cuts when it's not at all clear that core inflation won't inflect higher with GDP. So, Michael, can you explain what you meant when you said you're calling a big under on expected cuts this year and why you, as you put it, have severe doubts that core inflation sinks quietly into the sunset just like that? Well, I th- I'm going to agree with Jem on on what the bond market might do in in the event of an aggressive cut cycle. I mean, I, again, I'm going to caveat this by saying that, you know, unless we see like a major uh, uh, credit blow up, which is usually the impetus for an aggressive cutting cycle, uh, then then I could see that changing. Right. But as of right now, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that, uh, especially with when, when senior secured default rates are uh, uh, 1.5%. Um, so, so um, yeah, so to, to echo Jim's point, I think that if the, the markets, I don't know what the odds are priced in right now, but as of a couple of weeks ago, the market was pricing in six to eight when the Fed dots, uh, only indicated three. And I would say that the, the six to eight are just not going to happen. Um, I even have have some doubts on the three only because um, if, the, if Gemini are right about some of these structural factors that are, I, I think of these structural factors as dry tinder, okay? Um, there are certain sparks that can exacerbate uh, the dry tender, like, for instance, an oil spike, uh, shipping rate spike, you know, things like that. Uh, you certainly saw that that sp- that oil uh, spark 
in early 2021 and uh, a large part of 2022, you, you saw, uh, and now you're seeing it with, uh, with shipping rates. Um, but the underlying structural dry tinder is there. And so, I, and so uh, the obvious spark would be uh, an aggressive and premature rate cutting cycle. And if they do that, I think what the bond market might do, especially the long, long end, is akin to what happened in 1982. Because when you look at 79, 80, and 81, you had this period where there were rate hikes followed by a bout of bear steepening, and then another hike, and another bout of bear steepening. And then finally, the, by, by end of 81, beginning of 82, the economy goes into recession, uh, and, and the Fed had to cut pretty aggressively. But at that point, though, the, the underlying inflationary sort of dry tinder had been around for too long. I, I would say the animal, the, uh, the uh, inflation uh, boogeyman had gotten out uh, for too long. And when the Fed aggressively cut, the market lost all faith in the in the Fed's ability to tamp down inflation, and so you saw the long end just collapse and yield blow out. And I fear that that's exactly what happens again if the Fed co uh, commits to like a premature easing campaign that's uh, a lot more aggressive than than say like you know the the three dots. Isn't it amazing how quickly uh, we've gone from a Powell uh, positioning himself as Volcker to uh, Burns? I mean, it, it really is uh, it's been a phenomenal shift. One of yeah, the things I, that I, 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 oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add on to, to the point you and, you and Jen made. Um, you know, so I think of macro and markets as downstream from, from politics and culture. And like Jim has often noted, oh, we are moving towards populism. And so I think that culture is already at the Fed. If you look at the new governor appointments made over the past, you know, past three years, well, I think what stands out is that these guys basically have no experience in monetary policy. What they do have experience in is, uh, you know, labor, econ labor economics and stuff like that. So that is telling me that, you know, you have more of a bias towards um, labor rather than capital, right? That that's that's populism, and I think that that's going to color how the Fed manages risk going forward between, let's say, uh, potentially over tightening and hurting labor, or potentially under tightening and seeing inflation go back up. So, I mean, these are all institutions that live in our that that are of our popular. Uh, culture. And so that, that, I think that that's something to keep in mind as well. I was just going to say that, you know, be, because of this, this theme of these, these, uh, these four horsemen of economic resilience that I call them, it create, I think it presents much more risks, uh, extrinsic to the U S than intrinsic, because I think that the U.S. economy, honestly, is too strong for the Fed to to mount an aggressive cutting campaign. And that means that the U.S. dollar will stay too strong for the rest of the world's economies. And so so I, I, you're seeing uh, this situation in Egypt developing in real time where the black market exchange rate is basically 
uh, uh, doubled, right? Uh, it's gone from, you know, 35 to one to 70 to one. I was in Egypt in April, uh, hearing these, you know, horrible anecdotes, like our guide, you know, she sold her used car looking to basically upgrade her car. And then like within a couple of weeks, the price for a used car had gone up 50%. She had to beg the, the buyer to buy, to sell it back to her at up 25%. Well, that was when the Egyptian pound was 35 to one. Now it's 70 to one. So I think you're going to see more of this happen outside of the U.S. The, and and honestly, the big the big boogeyman that would be a a, a deflationary uh, uh, counter uh, point to this structural inflation is that if China were to devalue, right? Um, it the, the you know Chinese yuan has been steadily uh, sort of uh, cheapening, but I, I, because it's a closed capital account and controlled currency, they've been kind of just kind of, you know, intervening. But I think China honestly needs to devalue because they have major, major problems flogging that dead horse economy. Thank you all. We've got about one minute until we get some data here. But does anybody have anything to add? Maybe last bear on what's been said so far? Um, I, I guess I would just add um, that I, I recognize all the, the rationale for what folks have been saying around um, reacceleration of inflation or sort of the more uh, longer term trends. Um, but I do think that from just a practical perspective, you know, the progress on inflation has been faster than expected. I think the Fed has been very happy with that progress. Um, I think that their bias um, is towards being supportive rather than overly punitive, given a backdrop of you know, sort of rapidly falling inflation by by most measures, even if there's arguments for why those might increase in the future. Um, and I think that those arguments um, are front and center for the Fed rather than sort of what some, some of us might consider to be a longer term policy mistake. Thank you, Les Bear. So like I said, we should be getting some answers to some of our topics here in just a minute. So while we wait here, I'm just going to give panelists a moment to digest a little bit of the main points that come. And then I am going to want to pivot a little bit towards some discussion on the RRP and the Treasury some more. But for now, let's just give our panelists a minute to digest and feel free to chime in with any comments as you glance over. At an initial glance, I, I don't see much of a surprise here. I don't think anyone was expecting a surprise. I think everyone's looking forward to the presser to sort of read the tea leaves on, um, you know, how Powell addresses questions with respect to when rate cuts come, uh, questions about uh, QT, et cetera. But nothing in here is surprising and none of it was supposed to be. So uh, no harm, no foul, I think. Yeah, sitting right on that expected pause. Anything that you're seeing here at a glance, Joseph? Yeah, I, I agree with the last there. It doesn't seem to be, I mean, I, I don't expect it to be in, inventful. It seems like they removed that sentence about the U.S. banking system being sound and resilient, uh, moving away from the um, regional bank panic last year. Although we do have that small bank in New York today that's causing some excitement. Obviously, stocks are down, bonds are, or yields are up. Um, so obviously, I, I guess some people were hoping for something more dovish um, than, than what came out. But I don't see it as being a, a big surprise. 
And obviously these, these moves often go the other way in short order. So we'll see. So to kind of get things rolling, I actually do want to touch on that topic of banks. So I'm actually going to pick on last bear to start here. And then I do want to kick around the panel. And then again, we can also touch on anything, anything else that you notice in the FOMC release as we go along here. But last bear, I was wondering if you could briefly touch on the growing divergence between cash balances at large banks versus small banks and some of the consequences that continued quantitative tightening could have for those banks whose cash flow is shrinking. Yes, that's, that's actually a, a great point. Um, I think that, so first on an aggregate basis, what we've seen is that cash levels or sort of liquidity within the banking sector has increased pretty meaningfully um, since uh, I would say summer of this past year. And that goes back to the dynamics with uh, the reverse repo facility and bill issuance um, and to a, to a lesser effect, the uh, BTFP facility, um, which has grown in recent months. Um, but so generally speaking, the banks have more cash on hand than they did six months ago. Um, but if you look at which banks have that cash, um, it's almost uh, entirely in larger banks, which are sort of the top 25, um, which make up a majority of uh, the total banking assets. Um, But obviously, uh, the banking system is huge and makes up a small number of the total banks, um, if you were to count them. So from the small banks, we actually see uh, cash balances sort of shrinking or staying more constant. Um, and so a lot of that liquidity benefit seems to be going to the large money center type banks. Um, and where that could be problematic is obviously, um, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, concern around regional bank stress over the past year. Some of that has been founded, some of it maybe not as founded. Um, but obviously there's higher, uh, commercial real estate exposures. There's, less uh, regulatory constraints on those banks. So arguably they could be, um, uh, you know, they, they don't, they're not subject to as strict regulation. Um, and obviously we saw today uh, New York Community Bank took a, took a dive on, on credit losses um, in addition to, you know, some other factors there, but, but a huge increase in provision around uh, some of their holdings there. Um, and so I think that that is and you know it, it will be in the fed's mind um when they're thinking about the pace of qt going forward what happens when the reverse repo facility gets drained um and how far they want to push the banking sector um you know uh, recognizing that there are some risks particularly probably on the smaller bank side um and obviously they've they made the decision to uh to end the BTFP facility in March, which doesn't mean that those loans need to be repaid in March, but nevertheless, it is sort of an overhang um, that's going to have to come out. And a lot of that borrowing does happen from small banks. So I think uh, there's different arguments. I think, you know, Joe uh, will have a different perspective on it, Um, but there's definitely room for the Fed to continue to tighten and sort of, you know, turn the screws till uh, something breaks and who knows exactly when that will be. Um, But it remains a question as to how far uh, the Fed wants to sort of push it. And I think it is a consideration that they'll keep in mind, particularly when it comes to um, the pace of QT going forward. And particularly if we see the RP reaching down, you know, close to zero in the coming uh, quarters. Thank you, Les Bear. So let's actually, let's get into that a little bit. We've got, you know, a little under half an hour before j talks. Uh, I do want to cover that topic of the RRP in relation to QT. So there are still concerns abound 
of the RRP reaching zero by, I think they were saying June of 24, and carrying with it a risk of liquidity issues. Now, one course of action that's suggested is that the Fed can match the pace of QT to the RRP to kind of slow the balance sheet runoff, but a rising bill share could undo this. So Joseph, you actually wrote about this in your recent article, Passing the Buck. Could you walk us through this concept a little bit and how the Fed could more safely manage the QT and RRP situation? So one of the things that I'm looking for in, in the presser is how the Fed is going to handle uh, the tapering of QT. So since uh, the last meeting, we've been hearing more, uh, beginning with the minutes that were released, that the Fed is thinking about uh, tapering QT. And this is part of a normal process of ending QT. So if we think back to what happened in 2019, the Fed tapered QT for a few months and then finally ended it. So a taper could be the potentially a signal towards the end of QT. And again, we are also embarking upon a rate cut cycle uh, seemingly as well. So there's a, there's a few views on the Fed as to how to go about tapering QT. We have one person uh, who's saying that we should start tapering QT when the RP gets to zero, and that's been getting a lot of attention. But we have other people who are looking at a level of reserves in the banking system as a signal to want to do um, want to taper QT. So I think it's an open discussion right now. Uh, the thing is that, you know, this is something that isn't part going to be dependent upon what the U.S. Treasury is doing with its issuance schedule. Because if the U.S. Treasury were to issue more Treasury bills, that drains the RRP quickly, and that also puts upward pressure on money market rates, which many Fed officials monitor as a sign as to whether or not reserves are getting scarce and you should start to taper QT. Um, so based on, so I haven't, we haven't had the press yet, but based on what I'm seeing in the Treasury issuance, it still seems like QT is going to, taper from my perspective is probably not going to start until maybe quarter four of this year. Um, but maybe we get in new information from the pressure that could change that. Thank you, Joseph. Any comments to what Joseph said? So I do want to continue down this general line of thought, but I want to kind of just take a touch back here at, at the bonds discussion as well. So JP Morgan has said that the U.S. corporate bond spreads are at risk of widening next month, and that February is often a difficult month for the debt. I'm going to start with Jim here, but I do want to kick this around the panel as well. What risks does a widening of bond spreads carry, and what sort of market reaction would you expect to see should February prove to be as problematic as expected? Yeah, I mean, um, we've kind of talked about this, but outside of the core center in volatility, which is, I would uh, say, you know, equity markets uh, and the indexes specifically that everybody pays attention to, um, you know, volatility uh, has not just been increasing kind of uh, in the last three, uh, three, four months, but really the last two years. Um, and Vol supply outside of this core center um, has has been very weak. There's just been so much vol supply coming into the center that has been able to kind of hold everything at bay. Um, a unpinning of that center, my opinion, will ultimately come from uh, the bond market. Um, you know, and and maybe that is via FX and uh, other other places. Um, uh, but once the bond market, which is already kind of weak in terms of vol supply, 
um, really starts to do um, a bit more kind of wild gyrations, um, I think it can really, uh, especially given the what I view as a, a slightly weakening vol supply issue at the core center of the indexes, could really serve to unpin the whole um, the whole thing. Um, I, I'm not saying that in kind of doom gloom, but it's just a you know I've, I've kind of express this as a sumo market. You know, some people use the analogy of a, uh, of, a of a like tectonic plate. Um, just because implied volatility um, is low, just because those those sumos who are like pushing up against each other aren't moving for a while, or those tectonic plates which have massive pressure upon each other aren't moving, doesn't mean there's not uh, structural um, pressure and potential energy building. Um, you can see that by all the components and the pressures underneath that are kind of pushing up against each other in a lot of ways. But the potential energy uh, in this market, this sumo market, as, as I like to call it, um, are significant and building. And all it takes is a little shift of a toe or a little shift of that plate to get an earthquake or, you know, a, a, you know, 500 pound bodies flying across um, the, the, you know, the mat. So I think it's just important to note that that even though things seem very, very placid and markets seem very stable, if you look underneath the surface at the components and what's happening to ball supply and, the, and how things are moving and, um, and rotating, uh, there's significant risk. And if, if you can see that anywhere, it's in this bond market. So very relevant to, uh, you know, what we're talking about here, a widening of these spreads um, would, be, uh, would be a big warning sign um, and, and again, I think that core, that what I've called kind of the Dutch boy with his thumb in the dike, which is like structured product supply, uh, the vol supply in the indexes, is starting to thin a bit into this rally. Um, as we see market up, vol up, dealers are being taken, having their vol taken away from them into that rally. And, and I would be very careful as you start to see that again and again to understand that this has been a very critical kind of um, holding back of what's otherwise potential energy um, and, and something to watch very closely. If I could offer a viewpoint on the credit side of the spectrum. Um, Please. So so um, as a former capital structure ARB, right, I kind of learned this the hard way, which is, you know, I, as when, when you're arbitraging various parts of the capital stack, you have to identify specific risks and try to immunize them. And so I often had to have specific uh, interest rate hedges on against my book. I had to have specific credit spreads on against my book. And when you go to what I said earlier about when you look at the risky yield being comprised of the risk-free rate and a credit spread, what I've often noticed is that in periods of tightening rates uh, where the risk-free yield moves up quite a bit, you see a knee-jerk tightening of credit spreads, uh, which seems kind of counterintuitive, but I would explain it this way. If you are um, a, a yield buyer, an outright yield buyer, you're generally underwriting to overall risky yield. And so um, even so, if you were underwriting to say like an 8% yield uh, at a 3% risk-free rate, if all of a sudden the risk-free rate goes to 5%, well, overnight, um, you're still you're still underwriting to that 8% yield. So that inherent credit spread component gets compressed. It only takes a bit, of, it takes a bit of time before you realize that, wait a second, that 8% credit, that I, that 8% yield that I was underwriting with 3% risk-free rates 
it probably should be uh, underwritten at 10% now. That, that process takes time. And um, if you look at where high yield spreads are, right now they are at near all time tights, which is pretty remarkable. But I think that might, what I just explained might be part of the part of it. And you're gonna see, you will see inevitable widening. So another thing I really wanna to touch on here before we get into this this presser, I, I wanna keep on that topic of the balance sheets again here. So last bear in your recent publication, The Other Lever, you discuss the concepts of inflation versus the balance sheet policy. And you mentioned that rapid inflation incurred during a historic expansion in money supply and that rapid disinflation occurred during a historic contraction in money supply to which you said was driven by balance sheet policy, not inflation. And that balance sheet policy is arguably more important than interest rate policy over the past several years. Could you kind of walk us through that a little bit, Last Bear? Yeah, I guess the argument there is basically that the reason for the massive expansion of money supply in 2020 and 2021 wasn't a result primarily of uh, bank lending um, or sort of private credit creation. It was a result of uh, uh, balance sheet policy, i.e. quantitative easing, um, which creates uh, bank deposits as a, as a result of it. Um, and we've seen that sort of, you know, we've seen the total money supply sort of mirror the overall um, Fed's balance sheet, as that's been sort of the primary driver, both of the significant increase in money supply and then also uh, the decrease that we've seen once sort of quantitative tightening, tightening started in, in 2022. Um, and so I guess my point, uh, around that is that I think a lot of our historical framework centers more around sort of credit creation and the cost of credit um, and sort of interest rate focus, which obviously has historically been the primary tool uh, to influence money supply and sort of the growth in credit overall. Um, and I think that increasingly that's not really uh, the, the best framework to understand how monetary dynamics work today. Um, and the past several years have shown that um, you know, balance sheet policy is, uh, has been a more significant driver. Um, that being said, money supply has like continued to, has sort of seems to have inverted upwards a little bit. Some amount of that might be due to, um, some of these kind of esoteric issues with the reverse repo and how funds flow in between that and the banking sector and, and whatnot. Um, but overall, I guess my point was that, uh, you know, the fed has in some ways, uh, stepped into markets in a more direct way than they ever have before, um, both with, you know, with their ability basically to increase and decrease the total amount of bank deposits and base money that's out there. And despite the fact that that has been the primary driver, it doesn't get nearly as much attention as the rate dynamics, I think, primarily because that has historically been the framework that we've used. So I think just sort of focusing people away um, from solely looking at rates and thinking about how quantitative tightening and, and easing might have influenced inflation and disinflation over the past couple of years, I think is, is the key point. Thank you, Last Bear. Does anybody have any comments on that before I pick on Jim one more time and then get to closing remarks before the presser? All right, so Jim, you know we can't wrap up any of these macro panels without some more volatility insights. So I'm curious here. 
Earlier this month on the Schwab Network, you mentioned indications that vol had bottomed. Now, as we wrap up this first month of 24, what are you seeing in the options flows and what's your outlook on vol as we move forward? Has, has vol indeed bottomed out, Jim? Yeah, the trend is higher, and, and uh, that's really, uh, I'm talking about, uh, you know, 60-day vol on out um, has bottomed and will continue to work its way higher, I believe. Um, that said, a uh, very important kind of inside baseball here for, for people tuning in. Um, if you look at the S&P vol structure, uh, the term structure, it's been about a, a bit of a U. We haven't seen this in quite some time. You see this during big event vol um, sometimes. But what do I mean by U? I mean, the very short dated one, two, three, four, five day vol um, is quite high because of uh, this Fed meeting, uh, the unemployment number, et cetera. Um, but as you get out to, you know, Feb OPEX um, and, you know, two, three, four weeks out, um, it really bottoms. And then you see a March OPEX, which is a quarterly OPEX in the next Fed meeting is uh, dramatically higher. What that does is when you have that type of vol structure is it creates what we call VOMA and VEDA exposure for dealers. What is that? That means that the dealers are decaying longer volatility over time and as the vol compresses on the, uh, on the curve. That means the whole dealer network is being delivered a bunch of implied volatility in the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, that's broadly supportive and compressing of uh, implied volatility over the next week. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going up. Yes, there are structurally supportive flows that come off of that. But in the face of what we've seen from a macro perspective, quite negative kind of uh, flows and, and news. So um, but what that won't tell you up or down. I'm sure that's what everybody will want to know. What it'll tell you is less likely to be a tail event and a vol spike in the short term as people are decaying longer and longer, when I say people, dealers are decaying longer and longer implied volatility. So, um, you know, we got this move back to 4,900 here, where there's a lot of open interest and a lot of positioning in the futures. And uh, you're likely to see some after this event, vol compression and some placidity for a few days. Now, that doesn't mean we can't continue to drip lower. Uh, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, we can't reverse and, and, and rally back. But what it does mean is a lot of this vol uh, bid that we've seen recently um, is likely to come out of the market for the next couple of weeks. Um, it could be a situation where vol gets compressed 30 days and on forward, but you start to see a continued relatively outperformance of 60 day and 90 days still, which is what we've been seeing, um, and then into a, a potential coming rally again in the next weeks that follow, um, you know, or or even a sideways to downstairs, a down, down step. Uh, into Feb 14th that we could see, um, you know, again, a, a relight to, to longer term vol. So I would be very, uh, you know, very bearish of implied volatility 30 days on forward at this point, despite being broadly structurally uh, bullish of longer term. So calendars in this environment are, are a good place to be, um, you know, a longer, again, uh, upside calls, longer dated, uh, even some puts on a lower skew. Uh, longer dated um, and, and funding that with short term uh, and maybe even a little short vol um, for the relative short period of the next week or so. Thank you, Jim. So what I want to do here before we get into the presser itself is I just want to kick it around the panel one last time 
to get any closing remarks or anything you feel we didn't touch on enough during the panel. And of course, plug anything you got coming out that you need that you need the listeners today to know about. Let's start off here with Michael. Anything else you wanted to add here at the tail end? Um, yeah, just I, I would just say that um, to my earlier comment about how you know because of you know U.S. centric resilience causing this dynamic where the Fed is likely to stay tighter and longer than the rest of the world. Um, Look no further than oil. To me, oil is the global canary in the coal mine. It is a global commodity. And despite, you know, four to five OPEC plus cuts, despite all of this geopolitical escalation, you're seeing it just unable to rally. And so just, just watch oil. And uh, yeah, you can just find me at uh, Urban Cowboy and my Substack is urbancowboy.com. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. And thanks again for coming as always, man. It's always great to have you here. Last Bear, anything you wanted to add here before we send people into the presser? Um, I, I guess I would, uh, well, first you can follow me here. Um, you can also subscribe to my Substack, um, which you can find on my Twitter page, thelastbearstanding.com. Um I guess I would just add the, the one area, and I, I mentioned at the outset, and I, I just want to clarify my comment, but I mentioned the labor market. Um, and I think that's been a source of surprising strength for a long time. And that view has, um, you know, it's, it's supported the market, it's supported the economy. Um, but I do think that that's the one, if I was going to pick one area of the economic strength, that's that is potentially flashing more warning signs, I would pick the labor market. And so I think my, my general perspective is um, sort of bullish on continued growth, um, sort of generally bullish on, uh, you know, equities specifically. Um, but the one area that I would continue to sort of watch for deterioration that would make me change my mind um, would be in the labor market. So there's a huge number of different ways that we can look at that. Pretty much all of those measures show easing, easing from a very tight labor market, um, easing in wage pressures, um, which obviously is you know not supportive of the increase in inflation. Um, but if those start to go from easing to uh, cool to negative, that's where uh, I think that the, the soft landing story goes awry. So that's um, what I'm looking sort of on more of a longer term perspective. And I think that that does sort of hang in the Fed's mind more than uh, maybe some of us are giving credit for. So um, thanks again. Thanks for uh, having me as always. And thanks as always for coming last bear. Always crucial to have you here for these. Thank you. Jim, anything you want to add here? Uh, Yeah, I guess one more add on to that vol picture that I didn't, that I didn't mention is I think the, very important thing to note that was kind of uh, somewhat historic that we're seeing is that in the tech, you know, Mag Seven in particular uh, names, um, you know, lot of long calls being bought um, by customers because it was very profitable. Um, that that flattened uh, call skew, so really, uh, you know, has taken call skew in those names to historically uh, inverted levels. Um, and, and that actually uh, is an important sign because when you start to see that call squeeze that you see and that dealers are short those calls and that long stock and you get something to not necessarily make those uh, those names crash, but, you know, again, negative earnings like we've seen, a slowing of the momentum 
what you see is those calls now start to decrease in value and decay, which leads to the selling in that in those specific stocks um, of stock by dealers. Uh, there's a lot of potential energy, in other words, in those in, in those tech uh, names for continued selling by dealers. If we continue to see some uh, placidity, and you know, given the negative news and given the ball supply I just talked about in terms of the use structure in the short term for broad indexes, what that will likely mean is a, is a dispersion uh, where other names outside of the MAG7 uh, perform and, and uh, relative, relative. It might be into a declining stair-step market um, uh, or, or whatnot, but it, I think it's very important to note that that, that, that strong MAG7 will lead to um, likely what we're seeing today, uh, which is kind of upside down, some, some what looks like breadth. Um, uh, but but don't be confused by that breadth being healthy. It's really a function of a vol supply at the index level short term paired with the opposite in the indexes and a decaying of vol on the call side in the in the uh, mag seven and the big tech stocks um, and, and what that means for dealers. So just be mindful of that. I think you could really con- see this rotation continue for a bit uh, and maybe the beginning of something, a much bigger rotation. So be very careful if you're in that MAG7 and you're looking at tech after those earnings, not just because they're bad earnings, but because of what it means for, for volatility structure and flows coming off of that. Uh, if you want to follow us, kaivolatility.com backslash news. You can get uh, kind of our, our most recent media and updates. Um, and then obviously on, uh, on Twitter here, uh, jam underscore croissant. Well, always a, a pleasure being on here with all these guys. Um, thanks for being on. Always a pleasure to have you, Jim. Thanks so much. Joseph, anything you want to send these folks into the presser with? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I always learn a lot when I'm on this panel. You know, one of the things I notice about markets is that relationships always change. We had this big regime shift in 2008. We have a big regime shift after 2020. And so I think it's really important to, to note this because, for example, reading about Michael's Four Horsemen, fiscal spending demographics, that's really helpful in understanding how the world would change in a fundamental way. Listening to Jim's views on volatility, that becomes increasingly important in shaping price action, right? Um, and of course, the last bear talks a lot about how changes in the Fed's balance sheet, that, that all impacts things. So I, I think it's really important. All you guys should take a look at uh, the work presented by these panelists because I think we're a lot more dynamic than, than what you learn about in textbooks. And so it's important to, to have that flexibility going forward. Um, Bob's not here, but I always learn a lot about Bob from about fundamental data, labor employment, and so forth. Definitely follow him on Twitter. And if you're interested in my take on how this FOMC uh, turned out, I'm going to be posting my FOMC debrief on my YouTube channel, Joseph Wang, uh, afterwards. Absolutely check that out, folks. And, and just like Joseph said, Everything these folks put out is just invaluable in terms of learning. And it's definitely better than, you know, reading by yourself. So I would highly recommend checking them out.